Welcome to the Faith Dialogue Podcast with your host, Pastor Ken Baer. Are you ready to swim in the deep end of the Bible pool or climb to the top of Faith Mountain? If so, open the eyes that see, those ears that hear, and a heart that is receptive. Get your cup of coffee and your Bible so as we begin. Welcome to our 11 o'clock service. We are in the Gospel of Matthew. We have been for a few months now. We like going through the, the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse. That basically keeps me going. It, it's an easy way for me to preach, but at the same time, it also makes sure that we don't leave anything out. We want to make sure that if it's in the Bible, it, it's worthy to be taught. It's worthy to be, uh, to be instruction. Uh, now, today we're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, our, our sermon title is Salt and Light. If you remember last week, we were talking about the Beatitudes. Remember that we talked about the Beatitudes? That was the beginning of what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, now, today we'll be into that as well. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the Beatitudes, because if you remember, what we said was that the Beatitudes is the way Jesus started off this sermon. Many people believe that Jesus, it was Jesus' first sermon as well as his best. Think about that. His first sermon as well as his best. Now, I know you've been listening to me for a while. I wasn't always this good, okay? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, most preachers, you've got to start somewhere, right? You've got to start with, uh, with the youth. You're, you're, you're talking to five-year-olds, you know? Then you get the middle school. Then you get the high school. Jesus wasn't like that. Jesus knew exactly why he had come. He knew exactly what the good news of the kingdom was. So his very first sermon, indeed, could be his, his very best. Jesus didn't need to practice with the youth like most of us did. Um, and today's sermon, we're going to be talking about the salt and the light. But I want, to, I want to go back a little bit to the Beatitudes. I want to go back to the Beatitudes because what we find with the Beatitudes is they kind of set us up for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And as you recall, what we said was that Jesus had assembled the multitude in front of him. And in the multitude, he gave them, first of all, we broke it up into three different groups. And he basically talked to those that were mourning, those that were pure of heart, people that, people that were hungering. These were the people that were gathered to hear Jesus. They didn't have much. Many of them had come to try to be healed. Uh, they couldn't work because, because they were injured. These were the people that Jesus announced the kingdom of God to. That was the tremendous blessing they had. But at the same time, when we said that these characteristics, when you take a look at the nine blessings that were in the Beatitudes, these were characteristics that we should basically reflect as well. As a, as a believer in Jesus Christ, these are the things that we pick up. These are the nature of who Christ is. And our object, objective is to become more and more like Christ. That's what Christians means, by the way. To be a Christian means like you're a little Christ. You're supposed to reflect who Jesus truly is. But if you remember, when we talked last week, I said the last two blessings were interesting because they were also warnings. Remember that? They were warnings. And this is what they basically said. Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against and falsely for your sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, what Jesus is saying is something very interesting. These characteristics that we become more like Jesus are wonderful characteristics. 
they're the kind of people that you want to have as a, as a neighbor, okay? Kind of like uh, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, right? You want to live on that kind of block. When people uh, near you are peacemakers, where they're humble, they have a pure heart, uh, they're righteous. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. That's exactly who you want to have as your neighbors. But here's the issue. The problem is not all people like that. Because you bring a, a morality. And often without even saying anything about them, they feel that they are being judged. And they, and they are. In comparison to your righteousness, in comparison to who you are, they feel inadequate. And what happens is persecution breaks out. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying. And this is the transition between the Beatitudes and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Because the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to have a lot to say about what it means to live in the kingdom of God. And he's giving us this transition. He says, be careful because persecution will break out. And what Jesus is telling us is that with salt and light, which is our sermon today, he wants us to remain engaged. Because all too often what happens is that because persecution will break out, it doesn't even have to be overt. It can just be sometimes feel that you're being laughed at, that people are sarcastic. They're no longer asking you to some of the events you used to go to. You know, you don't have to be in high school or college or grade school to feel peer pressure. I've been told that you can be 70s, 80s, and in 90s and still feel peer pressure. People want you to stay quiet, which is too bad. You are the people that have the truth. The truth needs to be spoken. That's what Jesus is going to talk about with salt and light. And this is the transition that Jesus has between the Beatitudes. Then he has these, these two Beatitudes that talks about being careful that there's going to be persecution coming. But rejoice and be glad because just as they persecuted the prophets, they'll persecute you. But be glad because great is your reward in heaven. And then Jesus says you need to be salt. You need to be light. This is what it says in verse 13. You can follow along on the screen or in your bulletin. Verse 13 says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how can it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You see, this is what happens when you feel that you're going to be harassed. When you believe somehow you're going to be mar marginalized. Uh, when you feel like you're going to be punished because of who you believe in, what happens is we, we duck. We duck for cover. We, we hide out. We keep our voice quiet. We don't be so vocal. But Jesus says, don't do that. You need to engage. You are, you are salt. Now, when Jesus calls us salt, that's a, that's a huge benefit. He's given us a great compliment. But some of you have heard sermons on this idea of salt and light before probably, right? We, easy way to learn is that salt is a seasoning. We use it as a seasoning all the time. My dad would season his food before he even tasted it, okay? That was until he got to the Windsor. They took the salt away from him. But, but he would always salt things. Salt is a seasoning. It usually makes things taste better. Most of us know, however, because we've heard sermons before, that salt, especially in ancient days, was used as a preservative. Long before we have Ziploc bags and we have refrigeration, we have freezers, um, or knew how to can goods, they would take meat and fish and different things that would spoil and they would salt it. They would pack it in salt and it would preserve it sometimes for, for months, and they could, they could take it. So it was a preservative. Did you know also, however, it was a commodity like, like money? 
Uh, in fact, there's a saying, he's worth his salt. Have you heard that? He's worth his salt. It goes all the way back to the time of the Romans. The Roman soldiers were sometimes paid in salt because it was so valuable. That's what Jesus is calling you. He says, you're the salt of the earth. He's saying, you're valuable. Don't lose your saltiness. Stay, in, stay engaged. He wants us to be active in the kingdom of God. Maybe you've, maybe you've heard of, maybe you read a book back, came out about 25 years ago, called, it was Rick Warren that wrote it, The Purpose Driven Life. Do you remember that book? It was a great book. It sold 80 million copies. 80 million copies. It was his second book. I've written three books. I've sold about 80, okay? <laughs> You, you laugh. You, you laugh. But let me tell you, my wife tells me every now and then we get a royalties check in. Sometimes it's four digits, four digits. Like last week, we got a check for $18.35. Four, four digits. So, but Rick Warren sold 80 million copies of this book, for Purpose Driven Life. And the main thing about the Purpose Driven Life is the first few words of the book. The first few words of the book. The, the first chapter is, it says it all starts with God. And the very first sentence in this book that sold 80 million copies was, it's not about you. It's not about you. You didn't get saved. You didn't go to church. You didn't go to Sunday school. You didn't learn the law. You didn't learn how to be more and more like Jesus just for yourself. It was to share with others. It was to tell other people the, the good news of Jesus Christ. Rick Warren's first book was called The Purpose Driven Church, and it impacted many, many churches. Our church was a purpose-driven church. I loved it because in a church, we finally found our purpose as well because we found that the purpose of the church was very much connected with the purpose of the people, and we knew that people were called to, to connect and to grow and to serve and to share, and to evangelize, to worship. Those were the purposes that Rick Warren talked about that people had and that the church had as well. It was a wonderful way to organize the church. But Jesus says we need to be salt. We need to be salt. Don't lose your saltiness. How are you going to salt to salt if it's lost its saltiness? That's what Jesus is saying. You need to stay engaged. And we need to stay engaged because we have a thing called the Great Commission. Remember that? Jesus, just before he ascended into heaven, he said, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always until the very end of the age. That's what it means to be, to be salty, to share your faith. It isn't just your kids that need to know about Jesus. It's your neighbors. It's your friends. If you have the truth and don't speak the truth, you're basically standing up for the lie. We need to engage. Our churches, our denominations, our ministries, our schools, our hospitals, our, salt, our soup kitchens, homeless shelters are salt. They're salt to the earth. They're showing what Christianity is truly about. I have a, a friend that, uh, that's a pastor, and he was talking about that. Um, he was ministering in his church, and, and close by him was a, a mosque. And it was difficult because there were a lot of Muslim people in there. And the, and the head of the mosque, I think he's called an imam, uh, came to speak to him. And he said, and he said something interesting. The imam told this pastor, he said, you know, I'm supposed to hate you. I'm supposed to hate you, and I have trouble hating you because I see of all the, the good that you do with your soup kitchen and what you're doing with children on the streets and the way you're, that you're teaching the young people and the moral life that you live. It's difficult to hate you. See, the pastor was salt. He was engaged. He wasn't ducking for cover. Much of 
what salt entails is given in the 25th chapter of Matthew. It's the one of the last parable that Jesus teaches. It's the teaching of the sheep and the goats. Remember that parable? It's a wonderful parable. It, it really is. What, what it says is this. I'll just kind of paraphrase it for you. At the end of the age, the Son of Man, that's Jesus, comes and he separates all the nations, all the people. And he puts his sheep on his right hand and his goats on, the goats on the left. And then he turns to his sheep and he says, enter into the kingdom that was prepared for you. For I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was hungry and you fed me. I was in prison and you came and finished, uh, you came and visited me. I was naked and you clothed me. And they said, wait, wait, when did we ever see you thirsty or hungry or naked? When did we ever see that? And Jesus says, I certainly, I tell you, when you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto to me. You see, that's what salt is. Then he turns to those on his left, the goats, and the story isn't the same for the goats. He goes through the same litany, but he basically says, I was hungry and thirsty, and you did not give me something to eat. You did not give me something to drink. I was naked, and you never clothed me. And they said, when did we ever do that? When did we ever see you in, in that condition and not provide? And Jesus says, you don't understand. When you did, did, didn't do it to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. That's what it means to be salty. And it also means what it means to duck. Uh, to duck for cover because of coming persecution or just people being a little uncomfortable around you. You need to, you need to engage. You know, we're not here to make friends. And in, we are to influence people. We're not here to make friends. We are basically here to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and tell people what's up. Here's the point. Our ministries, our churches, our hospitals... Samaritan's Purse, our shelters, they all do this and more. They're, they're salty. And you can engage with them as well. Many of you have supported your ministries, your churches in the past. I, I just urge you to continue, to continue to be salt and life. You, you know the truth, and the truth needs to be, to be told. Jesus ends this, this first verse with a warning. He says, the salt loses its favor. It's then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You know, this happens all too often. Thriving ministries, thriving churches that once were are, are no more. They've lost their purpose. And it typically begins when they take their eyes off of Jesus. They take their eyes off of the truth. Let's go on to the next section. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light an amp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all those who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You see, in these verses as well, we see the Lord speaking about engagement. He said before about being salt. Now he's saying you want to be light as well. You want to, be, you want to engage with your family, your friends, and your, your neighborhood. Again, this is a great compliment. It's both a great compliment, but it's also a great responsibility. Jesus says we're the light of the world. Not only are we light receivers, but we are light givers as well. Just as we have the sun and the moon, the sun gives us light, but the moon reflects it. Have you ever walked out at night and you could still see the walkway? You could still see your doorstep. You could still find your cards because of the, the moon. It's called the lesser light in the Bible, but it still gives us light. We need to reflect that, that light. Light's needed in this world because the world is, quite frankly, in darkness. Those of you that are over 40 years of age, I don't want to see hands, but those of you that are over 40 years of age, you know the world is in darkness. 
we don't watch the news anymore, my wife and I. We don't watch the news anymore because I already know what's on the news. I already know what they're going to say. And it's darkness, and it's getting darker every single day. There's only a few left in the world that really know the truth, and we can't be quiet. We need to speak up. We need to continue to be salt and to be light. You know, speaking, Jesus talks, he says, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. And I, I probably told this story before, so if you know this story, just smile, kind of nod at the end, you know, like it's the first time. But, but there, was a, there was a time when, when I spent way too much time away from home. I was in Europe. I'd spent three years in Europe, and I was there, and I was in Paris and London and Brussels. Sounds like a fun job, doesn't it? But it wasn't. It was, I was away from my wife. I was away from my family. I was away from those things that mattered the most to me. And fortunately, God worked it out that I got a transfer. I was going to be the regional manager in Pittsburgh. Now, some people didn't know whether that was a promotion or a demotion, but it doesn't matter. It was Pittsburgh. And I remember so well driving with my wife and my kids in the back. And we were, now, Pittsburgh is in the Allegheny Mountains. And, and I remember so well coming down through the mountains. And Pittsburgh is there at the, at the, at the, at the Three Rivers area where the Three Rivers come together. It's beautiful. And this was, it was already dark. And the city was just all lit up with the bridges going into it and the tall buildings and the PNC building. It was just, it was a beautiful sight. And I remember it was this verse. It's a city on a, on a hill. It can't be hidden. And it was such a feeling. I, I teared up at the time. I tear up when I think about it because God had a, had a new plan for us. This was the city on the hill. This is where we first ministered in a church. This is where I was first hired as a pastor. This is where my, 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 my son and my daughter-in-law went to school at University of Pittsburgh. This is where we met some friends. This is where I got to meet some of the boys that my daughter was interested in. I got to go to my son's baseball and football and soccer games because I was home. I was no longer in Europe. This is a city on a hill, and it's, this is exactly what we need to do. I, I needed to engage. I needed to engage with my family, my, my wife and my kids. I, I needed to let my life shine. This is what it's talking about. Verse 16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You see, Jesus is telling us what our light is. It's our good works. They may see your good works and glorify your Father. Do you get the connection? It's not a lamp or a flashlight. It's the, that's just a metaphor. That's just a symbol for what your light truly is. It's, it's how you respond to people. It's what you do with your time and your talent and your treasure, how you engage the rest of the world. Salt is the opposite of corruption, we said, right? Salt is a preservative. Well, light in the same way as the gift of guidance. You know, there's, a, there's an old commercial that says, we'll leave the light on for you, right? That, that's, that's what it is. It's, it's, it's telling people where they need to go to truly find hope, to truly find life, to truly find eternal life. Because if they listen to the world, the world is in, is in darkness. Let's finish up with this third section, verses 17, 18, 19. Verse 17 says, do not think, Jesus says, that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle will no by means pass from the law till it is all fulfilled. Verse 19 says, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men, so shall it be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This is another transition. 
Jesus is using this because for the rest of this chapter, as well as the next couple chapters, Jesus is often going to refer to the law. He refers to the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets is the total. It's the totality of what we know as the Old Testament. The, the Jews broke it up, the law and the prophets. The prophets spoke of the prophecies. And now Jesus came and he said he fulfilled the law and the prophets. How did he fulfill the law and the prophets? Well, he fulfilled all of the predictive prophecies about the Messiah. There's over a hundred of them. I can quote them. I won't do it today, but there's over a hundred prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his first coming. There's over 300 that he's going to fulfill in his second coming. Jesus will fulfill all of the prophets. Well, what about the moral law? Well, the moral law is basically the Ten Commandments. We know what the Ten Commandments are. Jesus was different than any other man, however, living or dead from his time until this time. Jesus was tempted in every manner that we are, but he was sinless. You see, the, the, the Jewish law required that there was a Passover lamb that was spotless, that was supposed to be perfect. And that Passover lamb was to be sacrificed for the sins of the Jewish people. The angel of death could pass over the Jewish people because their sin was covered by the Passover lamb. But we know that Jesus was the lamb of God. He was the sinless lamb of God. He was able to fulfill the moral law because he was completely without sin. Jesus refers to the jot and the tittle. I love that. We still use those words, by the way. We jot things down, right? You jot things down. My wife has a shopping list. She jots things down. When I add things to it, she can't read my writing, okay? But I'm still jotting things down. The jot was referring to like the smallest letter in the Hebrew uh, Bible um, or Hebrew alphabet. A, a tittle is the, in, the, in the Hebrew language. Sometimes there would be a, like a little line and there might be a little tittle to the right or a little tittle to the left, differentiating one letter from another. Just a little teeny mark. And that's what Jesus is saying. Even the littlest marks like that, they're not going to pass away. Uh, the earth will pass away, but the law will never, never pass away. It's the smallest. And now apparently Jesus said this because there were some that were questioning Jesus' intentions in his ministry. Remember, the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't like John the Baptist. They didn't like John the Baptist. And this whole thing starts because Jesus came, he found out that John the Baptist had been arrested. He was arrested because they were jealous of John the Baptist's ministry. Well, they didn't think too much of John the Baptist, and they didn't think too much of it, their, his cousin, Jesus, either. Jesus, they felt, was a, a threat. So they would tell people that he's speaking against the law of Moses, and Jesus says, no, 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 not at all. I came to fulfill the law of Moses. I came to fulfill it, not to abandon it. So let's talk a little bit about the law. There's a, there's a couple parts of the law. There's moral behavior, which is the moral law, ceremonial law, that's primarily the sacrifices, the feast days, and then the civil law. The civil law has mainly to do with restitution. What do you do if your ox gets out of your barn and gores somebody else? What's the restitution there? They're basically how people were to operate as a society. And Jesus fulfilled or, or, or took care of all of these types of things. So, for example, the moral law, uh, the moral law was the Ten Commandments. You know that the Ten Commandments are basically the, the basis for Western law. Our, our laws today, uh, do not kill, <laughs> do not steal, th those, those laws are still on the books today. They're still the moral law. Jesus was able to fulfill them, but they, they, they're still Ten Commandments, right? They're not Ten Suggestions. They're, they're Ten Commandments. It was the basis of our laws today. Now, Jesus took away the penalty of the law. Because he died on the cross, he took away the penalty of the law. He knows that we still can't fulfill the law 
perfectly. We still violate the law, but we're free from the law of sin and death. The Bible says that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus now makes us free from the law of sin and death. That's the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 2. That includes sexual context. It includes penalties for failure to obey the ordinances. Moral law uh, does not point as much people to Jesus as it does point to their, to their sin. And Jesus didn't do away with that. The law is still there. Now, there's also ceremonial law. Ceremonial law has a lot to do with what goes on in the temple. And what went on in the temple was typically the, the Passover feast, the, all of the feasts, the Passover and the feast, of, uh, the feast of First Fruits. There were actually seven different feasts that were very, very important to the people of Israel. Seven feasts. And Jesus said that he fulfilled these. Isn't that interesting? He fulfilled them. How did he fulfill them? Well, scholars will tell us that there were seven feasts, uh, seven feasts, four that were in the spring, three that were in the fall. And if you've been in any of my prophecy classes, we've gone through this before, that Jesus fulfilled or the church fulfilled all four of the spring, spring feasts. The Passover was fulfilled by Jesus at his, at his crucifixion. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was fulfilled by his burial in the tomb. The Feast of First Fruits was fulfilled uh, by Jesus' resurrection. And then there was Pentecost. Pentecost was 50 days afterwards, and it was fulfilled when the Holy Spirit came. Those were the spring feasts, and they've all been fulfilled. The Bible tells us that the three fall feasts, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles will all be fulfilled in the seven years of tribulation. But that's for another day. Jesus says this. He says, whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You know, it's interesting that, that today there are, are many that continue to teach these moral laws. We're often criticized by others. We're told that those laws don't apply anymore. But unfortunately, there are people that backpedal. Even churches, some of our denominations will backpedal a little bit and they'll say these things really don't apply to us today. But they're moral laws. There are laws about fornication. If you don't know what that means, see me after the class. There's fornication. There's adultery. There's divorce. Homosexuality. All too often, we've softened some of our stance on some of these things as if they're okay, but they're not okay. The Bible very clearly says that if those that practice these things will have difficulty, they'll end up in death. There's a, there's a result to these types of things, and it's, it's not good. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. We are free from the penalties of, you know, wages of sin is death, but we've been saved. We've our, we are new creation. As a result, we have a, a different standard. But Jesus says, be careful, because those who teach these things are called great. Those who do not teach these things will be called the least in the kingdom of God. So let's go on. Let's finish up with the very last verse. Verse 20. Jesus says this, he says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now it's interesting, you know, we, we hear the righteousness of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and we kind of smile, right? And the reason is, is because we've all been to Sunday school, we've all been heard sermons before, we know the Pharisees and the Sadducees. If I said, give me one word that describes a Sadducee or a Pharisee, you would say, hypocrite, right? Hypocrite. This is what John the Baptist called. This is what Jesus called them. We saw them that they were legalists in the early church as well. They were hypocrites. There's a number of verses that called the Pharisees hypocrites. But in the first century, when Jesus said this, as he was on preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, 
and the people were gathered around him, they revered the Pharisees. They were the pinnacle of what it meant to follow God. They knew exactly what you needed to do, and you could go to them and tell you, they would tell you how far you could walk on a Sabbath day. They could tell you exactly how to tithe on your mint and your spices and, and all of the little things. They knew the law so well, they were considered very, very righteous. Well, well the issue is, is Jesus is saying that, that your righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees. Well, how do you do that? How do you exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees? Well, I'll give you two words. Two words tells you exactly how to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees through Jesus. You see, Jesus gives us his righteousness. Isn't that something? This is what's called imputed righteousness. It's a, it's a transaction that we have. We come to Jesus as beggars. Remember a couple weeks ago, I, I talked about that, the, the, the ragamuffins. You know, we have nothing to offer. We give it to Jesus, and Jesus gives us what? His righteousness. He trades our unworthiness for his worthiness. We take on the attributes of, of Jesus. The, this, the Bible says that the law that was against us, the law that was against us, was nailed to the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, the law that was against us was nailed on that cross with it. it. It died with Jesus. The Apostle Paul speaks specifically to the righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. He tells us this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says, For our sake he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, that's in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. And my friends, I tell you, the righteousness of God trumps the righteousness of the, 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 the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That's exactly what Jesus meant when he said that the, your righteousness needs, needs to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. You put on the righteousness of God. Amen? You've been listening to Faith Dialogue with Pastor Ken Baer, recorded live at Celebrate Seniors, a ministry of Faith Dialogue. You can listen to or watch all of the recordings at Faith Dialogue by going to www.faithdialogue.org.